Chapter 8 of How to Write a Novel by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. How Authors Work Quick and Slow. The public has shown a deep interest in all details respecting the way in which writers produce their books, the food they eat, the clothes they wear, their weaknesses and their hobbies, what pens they use, and whether they prefer the typewriter or not. All these are items which a greedy public expects to know. So much is this the case today that an acrid critic recently offered the tart suggestion that a novelist was a man who wrote a great book and spent the rest of his time, very profitably, in telling the world how he came to write it. I do not intend to pander to the literary newsmonger in these pages, but to produce as much as I know of the way in which novelists work, in order to throw out hints as to how a beginner may perchance better his own methods. A word of warning, however, is necessary. Do not, for heaven's sake, ape anybody. Because Zola darkens his rooms when he writes, that is no reason why you should go and do likewise. And if John Fisk likes to sit in a draft, pray save yourself the expense of a doctor's bill by imitating him. An author's methods are only of service to a novice when they enable him to improve his own, and it is with this object in view that I reproduce the following personal notes. The relative speeds of the writing fraternity are little short of amazing. Hawthorne was slow in composing. Sometimes he wrote only what amounted to half a dozen pages a week, often only a few lines in the same space of time, and, alas, he frequently went to his chamber and took up his pen, only to find himself wholly unable to perform any literary work. Bret Hart has been known to pass days and weeks on a short story or poem before he was ready to deliver it into the hands of the printer. Thomas Hardy is said to have spent seven years in writing Jude the Obscure. On the other hand, Victor Hugo wrote his Cromwell in three months and his Notre Dame de Paris in four months and a half. Wilkie Collins, prince among the plotters, was accustomed to compose at white heat. Speaking of heart and science, he says, rest was impossible. I made a desperate effort rushed to the sea, went sailing and fishing, and was writing my book all the time, in my head, as the children say. The one wise course to take was to go back to my desk and empty my head, and then rest. My nerves are too much shaken for traveling. An armchair and a cigar, and a hundred and fiftieth reading of the glorious Walter Scott, king, emperor, and president of novelist. There is the regimen that is doing me good. An enterprising editor not very long ago sent out circulars to prominent authors asking them how much they can do in a day. The reply, in most cases, was that the rate of production varied. Sometimes the pen or the typewriter could not keep pace with thought. At other times it was just the opposite. It is very necessary at this point to draw a distinction between the execution of a work and its development in the mind from birth to perfection. When we read that Mr. Crockett, or somebody else, produced so many books in so many years, it does not always mean, if ever, that the idea and its expression have been a matter of weeks or months. To write a novel in six weeks is not an impossibility, even a passable novel, but to sit down and think out a plot, with all its details of character and event, and to write it out so that in six weeks, or two or three months, the manuscript is on the publisher's desk, well, don't believe it. No novel worthy of the name was ever produced at that rate. How many words a day? In nothing do authors differ so much as on the eternal problem of whether it is right to produce a certain quantity of matter every day, inspiration or no inspiration. 
Thomas Hardy has no definite hours for working, and, although he often uses the night-time for this purpose, he has a preference for the daytime. Charlotte Bronte had to choose favorable seasons for literary work. Weeks, sometimes months, elapsed before she felt that she had anything to add to that portion of her story which was already written. Then some morning she would wake up, and the progress of her tale lay clear and bright before her in distinct vision, and she set to work to write out what was more present to her mind at such times than actual life was. When writing Jane Eyre, and little Jane had been brought to Thornfield, the author's enthusiasm had grown so great that she could not stop. She went on incessantly for weeks. Miss Jane Barlow confesses that she is a very slow worker indeed. When I consider the amount of work which the majority of writers turn out in a year, I feel that I must be dreadfully lazy. Even in my quiet life here I find it difficult to get a long, clear space of time for my work, and the slightest interruption will upset me for hours. It is difficult to make people understand that it is not so much the time they take up as causing me to break the line of thought. It may be that somebody only comes into the study to speak to me for a minute, but it is quite enough. I suppose it is very silly to be so sensitive to interruptions, but I cannot help it. I sometimes say it is as though a box of beads had been upset, and I had to gather them together again. That is just the effect of anyone speaking to me when I am at work. I write everything by hand, and it takes a long time. I am sure I could not use a typewriter or dictate. Indeed, I never let anybody see what I have written until it is in print. Sometimes I write a passage over a dozen times before it comes right, and I always make a second copy of everything, but the corrections are not very numerous. Mr. William Black was also a slow producer. I am building up a book months before I write the first chapter. Before I can put pen to paper, I have to realize all the chief incidents and characters. I have to live with my characters, so to speak. Otherwise, I am afraid they would never appear living people to my readers. This is my work during the summer. The only time I am free from the novel that is to be is when I am grouse-shooting or salmon-fishing. At other times I am haunted by the characters and the scenes in which they take part, so that, for the sake of his peace of mind, my method is not to be recommended to the young novelist. When I come to the writing, I have to immure myself in perfect quietude. My study is at the top of the house, and on the two or three days a week I am writing, Mrs. Black guards me from interruption. Of course, now and again, I have to read a good deal preparatory to writing. Before beginning Sunrise, for instance, I went through the history of secret societies in Europe. Charles Reed and Anthony Trollope Charles Reed's habit of working was unique. When he had decided on a new work, he plotted out the scheme, situations, facts, and characters on three large sheets of pasteboard. Then he set to work, using very large fool's cap to write on, working rapidly, but with frequent references to his storehouse of facts in the scrapbooks which were ready at his hand. The genial novelist was a great reader of newspapers. Anything that struck him as interesting, or any fact which tended to support one of his humanitarian theories, was cut out, pasted in a large folio scrapbook, and carefully indexed. Facts of any sort were his hobby. From the scrapbooks, thus collected with great care, he used to elaborate the questions treated of in his novels. Anthony Trollope is one of the few men who have taken their readers into their full confidence about book production. The quotation I am about to make is rather long, but it is too detailed to be shortened. When I have commenced a new book, I have always prepared a diary, divided into weeks, and carried it on for the period which I have allowed myself for the completion of the work. In this I have entered, day by day, the number of pages I have written, so that if any time I have slipped into idleness for a day or two, 
the record of that idleness has been there staring me in the face and demanding of me increased labor so that the deficiency might be supplied according to the circumstances of the time whether any other business might be then heavy or light or whether the book which i was writing was or was not wanted with speed i have allotted myself so many pages a week the average number has been about forty it has been placed as low as twenty and has risen to one hundred and twelve and as a page is an ambiguous term my page has been made to contain two hundred and fifty words and as words if not watched will have a tendency to straggle i have had every word counted as i went under the title of a walk in the wood trollope thus described his method of plot-making and the difficulty the novelist experiences in making the tricksy aerial of the imagination do his bidding i have to confess that my incidents are fabricated to fit my story as it goes on and not my story to fit my incidents i wrote a novel once in which a lady forged a will but i had not myself decided that she had forged it till the chapter before that in which she confesses her guilt in another a lady is made to steal her own diamonds a grand tour de force as i thought but the brilliant idea struck me only when i was writing the page in which the theft is described i once heard an unknown critic abuse my workmanship because a certain lady had been made to appear too frequently in my pages i went home and killed her immediately i say this to show that the process of thinking to which i am alluding has not generally been applied to any great effort of construction it has expended itself on the minute ramifications of tale-telling how this young lady should be made to behave herself with that young gentleman how this mother or that father would be affected by the ill-conduct or the good of a son or a daughter how these words or those other would be most appropriate or true to nature if used on some special occasion such plottings as these with a fabricator of fiction are infinite in number but not one of them can be done fitly without thinking my little effort will miss its wished-for result unless i be true to nature and to be true to nature i must think what nature would produce where shall i go to find my thoughts with the greatest ease and most perfect freedom i have found that i can best command my thoughts on foot and can do so with the most perfect mastery when wandering through a wood to be alone is of course essential companionship requires conversation for which indeed the spot is most fit but conversation is not now the object in view i have found it best even to reject the society of a dog who if he be a dog of manners will make some attempt at talking and though he should be silent the sight of him provokes words and caresses and sport it is best to be away from cottages away from children away as far as may be from chance wanderers so much easier is it to speak than to think that the slightest temptation suffices to carry away the idler from the harder to the lighter work an old woman with a bundle of sticks becomes an agreeable companion or a little girl picking wild fruit even when quite alone when all the surroundings seem to be fitted for thought the thinker will still find a difficulty in thinking it is easy to lose an hour in maundering over the past and to waste the good things which have been provided in remembering instead of creating the mission of fancy it is not for rules of construction that the writer is seeking as he roams listlessly or walks rapidly through the trees these have come to him from much observation from the writings of others from that which we call study in which imagination has but little immediate concern it is the fitting of the rules to the characters which he has created the filling in with living touches and true colors those daubs and blotches on his canvas which have been easily scribbled with a rough hand that the true work consists it is here that he requires that his fancy should be undisturbed that the trees should overshadow him that the birds should comfort him 
and that the green and yellow mosses should be in unison with him that the very air should be good to him the rules are there fixed fixed as far as his judgment can fix them and are no longer a difficulty to him the first coarse outlines of his story he has found to be a matter almost indifferent to him it is with these little plottings that he has to contend it is for them that he must catch his aerial and bind him fast and yet so bind him that not a thread shall touch the easy action of his wings every little scene must be arranged so that if it may be possible the proper words may be spoken and the fitting effect produced fancies of another type most authors indulge in little eccentricities when working and if the time should ever come that your name is brought before the public notice it would be advisable to develop some whimsical habit so as to be prepared for the interviewer who is sure to ask whether you have one to push your pen through your hair during creative moments would be a good plan it would reveal a line of baldness where you had furrowed the hair off and afford ocular proof to all and sundry that you possessed a genuine eccentricity or if you prefer a habit still more bizarre you might put a hammock in a tree and always write your most exciting scenes during a rainstorm and under the shelter of a dripping umbrella the fact is every penman has his little peculiarities when at work but they should be kept as private property of course there are authors who revel in publicity and others again have intimate details wormed out of them fact remains however that these details are interesting because they are personal and they are occasionally helpful because they enable one writer to compare notes with others we have all heard of the methodical habits of kant when thinking out his deep thoughts he always placed himself so that his eyes might fall on a certain old tower this old tower became so necessary to his thoughts that when some poplar trees grew up and hid it from his sight he found himself unable to think at all until at his earnest request the trees were cropped and the tower was brought into sight again george eliot was very susceptible as to her surroundings when about to write she dressed herself with great care and arranged her harmoniously furnished room in perfect order hawthorne had a habit of cutting some article while composing he is said to have taken a garment from his wife's sewing-basket and cut it into pieces without being conscious of the act thus an entire table and the arms of a rocking-chair were whittled away in this manner upon ibsen's writing-table is a very small tray containing a number of grotesque figures a wooden bear a tiny devil two or three cats one of them playing a fiddle and some rabbits ibsen has said i never write a single line of any of my dramas without having that tray and its occupants before me on my table i could not write without them but why i use them is my own secret Ouida writes in the early morning she gets up at five o'clock and before she begins works herself up into a sort of literary trance maurice jacquai always uses violet ink to which he is so accustomed that he becomes perplexed when compelled outside of his own house to resort to ink of another color he claims that thoughts are not forthcoming when he writes with any other ink one of the corners of his writing desk holds a miniature library consisting of neatly bound notebooks which contained the outline of his novels as they originated in his mind when he has once begun a romance he keeps right on until it is completed some of our younger writers mr zangwill has no particular method of working he works in spasms regular hours he says may be possible for a writer of pure romance but if you are writing of the life about you such regularity is impossible colson kernahan works in the morning and in the evening but never in the afternoon he always reserves the afternoon for walking cycling and exercise generally he is unable to work regularly some days indeed pass without doing a stroke anthony hope is found at his desk every morning 
but if the inspiration does not come he never forces himself to write sometimes it will come after waiting several hours and sometimes it will seem to have come when it hasn't which means that the next morning he has to tear up what was written the day before and start afresh before robert barr publishes a novel he spends years in thinking the thing out in this way ten years were spent over the mutable many and two more years in writing it when max pemberton has a book in the making he just sits down and writes away at it when in the mood i find he says that i can always work best in the morning one's brain is fresher and one's ideas come more readily if i work at night i find that i have to undo a great deal of it in the morning in working late at night i have done so under the impression that i have accomplished some really fine work only to rise in the morning and after looking at it feel that one ought to shed tears over such stuff h g wells as might be expected has a way of his own in the morning i merely revise proofs and typewritten copy and write letters and in fact any work that does not require the exercise of much imagination if it is fine i either have a walk or a ride on the cycle we also have a tandem and sometimes my wife and i take the double machine out and then after lunch we have tea about half-past three in the afternoon it is after this cup of tea that i do my work the afternoon is the best time of the day for me and i nearly always work on until eight o'clock when we have dinner if i am working at something in which i feel keenly interested i work on from nine o'clock until after midnight but it is on the afternoon work that my output mainly depends curious methods in another interview mr wells said i write and rewrite if you want to get an effect it seems to me that the first thing you have to do is to write the thing down as it comes into your mind slush mr wells calls it and so get some idea of the shape of it in this preliminary process no doubt one can write a good many thousand words a day perhaps even seven or eight thousand but when all that is finished it will take you seven or eight solid days to pick it to pieces again and knock it straight the slush effort of the invisible man came to more than one hundred thousand words the final outcome of it amounts to fifty five thousand my first tendency was to make it much shorter still i used to feel a great deal ashamed of this method i thought it simply showed incapacity and inability to hit the right nail on the head the process is like this one worry and confusion two testing the idea and trying to settle the question is the idea any good three throwing the idea away getting another finally returning perhaps to the first four the next thing is possibly a bad start five grappling with the idea with a feeling that it has to be done six then the slush work which i have already described seven reading this over and taking out what you think is essential and rewriting the essential part of it eight after it has been typewritten you cut it about so that it has to be retyped nine the result of your labor finds its way into print and you take hold of the first opportunity to go over the whole thing again contrasted with the pleasant humor of the above is the gravity of ian mclaren although the stories i have written may seem very simple they are laboriously done this kind of short story cannot be done quickly there is no plot no incident and one has to depend entirely upon character and slight touches curiously arranged and bound together to produce the effect each of the bonnie briar bush stories went through these processes one slowly drafted arrangement two draft revised before writing three written four manuscript revised five first proof corrected six revised corrected seven having been published in periodical revised for a book eight first proof corrected nine second proof corrected enough 
these personal notes will teach the novice that every man must make and follow his own plan of work experience is the best guide and the wisest teacher end of chapter recording by brett downey